Well, let us turn again in our Bibles to 2 Timothy as we continue to work our way through the pastoral epistles. The section that we will be in will take us at least twice to get through um, these few verses. We come to 2 Timothy 3, beginning with verse 10. However, I think that it would be a good thing for us to go back to verse 1 and reread the verses that were preached last week that precede the ones that we will be looking at this week. Let's bow in prayer before reading. Our Father, we pray for unction from on high, that the Spirit of God who has inspired this book will now enable the one who preaches to preach in the power of the Spirit of God and that the powerful work of the Spirit will be operative in the lives of believers so that the page will be illumined to our understanding and that you will apply to our hearts and consciences not only those things that we need for living a godly life today and tomorrow and throughout the week, but for a lifetime. For we know that your word preached week after week has the cumulative effect of working within our hearts to form us into the likeness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Help us to have the long-term view as we study together your word. And if there is anyone at all, perhaps several today, who are with us who do not know Christ, we pray that they will see their need of Jesus and that they will bow before the Savior. And Father, as we come to your word, help us to show the respect and reverence that it deserves as your word by paying attention to the very words that form your word. And help us to be careful to try and understand the connection and relationships and the logic in this particular case of Paul's thought. And we pray this in the name of Christ our Lord. Amen. Second Timothy 3. Let's begin reading at verse 1. This is the word of God. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness but denying its power, avoid such people. For among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Jannes and Jambres oppose Moses, so these men also oppose the truth, men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith. But they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as was that of those two men. Now here's where we take it up this week, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now I remind you that the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy is writing his last letter. He is in prison, almost certainly the Mamertine prison, that horrible prison in Rome, and he knows that he is going to die. 
And as the Apostle Paul nears death, what concerns him? What concerns him is passing down the faith, passing down the truth, that godly men will teach others what the Apostle Paul has taught, that what Paul has taught Timothy, he will pass down to other faithful men who will in turn pass it down to others. Uh, Taking the first and second letter together, he's concerned with the church, uh, with uh, preaching and teaching and elders and deacons and congregational life. These are the things that are on Paul's mind as he comes near to death. I think that's very, very telling. For some of the things that many modern Christians minimalize, the Apostle Paul is thinking upon and dwelling upon as he languishes in that Mamertine prison. Now, as we come to this particular section, you will remember that Paul has been exhorting Timothy to remain firm and to stay the course. A falling away will happen. In the last days, perilous times will come. And at the top of the list, he says, people will be lovers of self. But then in verse 10 and 14, you will notice that he says to Timothy, you, however. And then in verse 14, but as for you. As over against the false teachers and that list of their horrible characteristics in the early part of 2 Timothy 3, Timothy, you are to live differently. You are to think differently. Your doctrine and life should reflect your relationship with Christ at all times. You, however, live differently, Timothy. And so God's call to this young man and God's call to us this morning is that we be different from the world around us in our view of the world, our view of who God is, who man is, why we are here, where we are going, and what life and death are all about. So he is encouraging God's man to be different from the world, and as he does so, he brings a series of arguments. And I want us to look at those arguments this morning. The first is this. Paul says to Timothy, look to my apostolic authority and to my example. Look to my apostolic authority and my example. And Timothy, follow my example. Now, we read this in verses 10 through 13. I think it would be good to reread the verses. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while people, evil people, and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. And so he says, you followed my example. This is what I want you to continue to do. This is not arrogance. Paul knows his call and his life has come to him by the grace of God. And so he enumerates, he lists, if you will, the characteristics of his life that Timothy, the young minister, has been following that he should continue to follow. First in the list, if you look here in verse 10, is teaching. You, however, have followed my teaching. Because Paul's teaching is sharply contrasted with the false teaching of the apostates that have entered into the church. Timothy has closely followed, actually, the word parekalouthesos is the very same word used by Luke in chapter 1 of Luke, when in Luke 1-3, Luke speaks of following out carefully his sources as he organized his gospel. So just as Luke carefully followed his sources, so now Timothy, the young minister, has been carefully following the apostle Paul in his teaching. Timothy made Paul's teaching his own. These things taught by Paul were now his commitments. These are the things that form his life. These are the things he preaches to his congregation in Ephesus. And contrary to what we read in chapter 3, for people will be lovers of self, Timothy is following the Apostle Paul in his willingness to suffer for the faith and to stand for the cause of God and truth for the sake of those who need to hear the gospel of Christ. 
So teaching is first. It is always first. And if there is a Christian here who is minimizing teaching, for certainly we find such Christians, it's simply not biblical. You need the teaching of God's Word, the authoritative teaching of the Word of God, if indeed your conduct, your life, is to be what God calls your life to be. So he begins with teaching. You have followed my teaching. But also he goes on to say here in verse 10, you followed my conduct, which also contrasts with the false teachers as we have this list in the first verses of chapter 3. Because doctrine and life go together. What you believe is going to influence how you live. It is inevitable. And then he goes on to say that Paul's purpose is contrasted with the false teachers. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life. My purpose, Paul says, which is different than the purpose of the false teachers around me. You might recall in Acts 26 when the Apostle Paul is speaking of his conversion before King Agrippa. That he says in Acts 26, 19, Therefore, O Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but declared first to those in Damascus, then in Jerusalem, and throughout all the region of Judea, also to the Gentiles, that they should repent and turn to God, performing, performing deeds in keeping with their repentance. That was Paul's mission given to him by the ascended Christ. That is the purpose of his life, and he was always consistent with that purpose. He did not deviate. He was consistent all the way through so that as he now is in this Mamertine prison and about to die, he can say, my aim in life, you have followed Timothy. Now let me ask you the question, what is your aim in life? What is your purpose in life? What drives you in the inner man? If people watched you and me as Timothy watched Paul, would your purpose be evident? Would they see that you really do believe that your chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever? And that as a Christian in whatever vocation you have been called to enter into, that you are doing this to the glory of God and to the honor of the King? Would they see that your one aim in life is Christ? That to live for you is Christ, to die is gain? Would they see that? They should see that. Do our children see that in the lives of their parents? And so the Apostle Paul says, you have seen my aim in life, and uh, you're following that aim. Would you want your life, if it is observed by others, to be the kind of life that others are following? Paul could say that. But then Paul says, you've also seen my faith. Look at verse 10 again. You ever, however, follow my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, which also contrasts with the apostates who believe in themselves, not the true and living God. But as we have seen, the apostle Paul can say, I know in whom I believed. I know whom I have believed, for he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. This is what drove the apostle Paul. He knew Christ. He had faith in Christ alone for his salvation and his redemption. And then he said also, my long suffering, my faith, or my patience, my long suffering, which also, of course, contrasted with the false teachers, so that in hard and difficult times and circumstances, the Apostle Paul was long suffering. He then mentions his love, which also contrasts with false teachers who do not love truth, do not love God, do not love the church. Despite all of their talk about love, they don't love. The Apostle Paul was willing to do and say the hard things, thereby showing that he loved, and to teach the truth, and was willing to suffer for the truth because he loved. So much so that in 2 Corinthians 5.14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us. The authorized version, the love of Christ constrains us. One is translated, the love of Christ holds us in custody. And then he goes on to describe in 2 Corinthians 5 the gospel that he preached in the Agora. This is what controlled him. This is the love that motivated him. And so Paul says, you have followed my love. He goes on to say, then you have followed my steadfastness which certainly can contrast with false teachers who are not steadfast, certainly not in the faith. The word there means endurance or perseverance, if you will. The Apostle Paul kept going no matter how hard it was, 
trusting Christ, believing Christ, preaching Christ, living for Christ, never giving in to self-pity or self-reliance. And then the Apostle Paul adds on top of all of that, you followed me in another thing. As a matter of fact, Timothy, you've seen some of it. It's my, my persecutions, my afflictions, my sufferings. Uh, so he says in verse 11, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Specifically mentioning Pisidian, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra because this is the area from which Timothy came. This is where he grew up. It's where he was converted, where he first saw the Apostle Paul. You can read about it in Acts chapter 13 and 14. Paul was stoned. He was left for dead. He went and he took the gospel because people need the gospel. Without the gospel, they cannot be saved. And the Apostle Paul says, you remember those times, Timothy, you followed me in those persecutions when I was stoned and left for dead, for example. And then he says, every time the Lord delivered me. Now Paul is in prison. Will the Lord deliver him? Well, in chapter 4, verse 18, if we can look ahead, the Apostle says, the Lord will rescue me from every evil deed and bring me safely into his heavenly kingdom. To him be the glory forever and ever. Amen. The Apostle Paul would be beheaded. He knew that he was to die, and yet he says, that's deliverance too. Because deliverance does, all, does not always mean being spared trouble. Uh, deliverance in this case will mean that he goes into the presence of his Lord and his Savior. You know, I think there's a very interesting thought that can be gleaned from the Apostle Paul here in chapter 3 and chapter 4 of 2 Timothy. And that is the thought that you cannot die until your work is done that the Lord has ordained for you, Christian. Very important, I think, for us to remember. For those who go into very dangerous places in which to minister the gospel, you cannot and will not die until the Lord has ordained for you to die. It is appointed once for man to die, and after this the judgment, the Bible says. You are not going to die until the Lord ordains your death. For that indeed is determined, decreed, predestined. And yet at the same time, as the Apostle Paul says this, it's not simply a philosophical statement. He's simply just giving in to its inevitability. It's, it's, it's language of victory, folks. The Lord is going to deliver me, even if it means that I'm beheaded. It's deliverance. For as he says in Philippians, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That's deliverance too. So I think there's a principle for us to learn. As the, as the young protege of Paul, Timothy, has been following him and all of these characteristics culminating in suffering and afflictions, the Apostle Paul says that... All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's there in verse 12. All Christians who live a godly life. Now, if you're a Christian and for the time being you're not living a godly life, then I can't say you'll be persecuted for the faith. But if you are following Christ, if you are obedient to Him, if you are living for Him, to one degree or another in this present evil age, you will participate with a church that will be persecuted for the cause of God and truth. So the question is this, do you believe the gospel? Do you really believe the gospel? If you believe the gospel, then you must be prepared to suffer for it. Let's take the time to glance at a few passages together. In John chapter 15, the Lord Jesus said this to his disciples. In John 15, verses 18 through 20. John 15, 18 through 20. The Lord Jesus says, John 15, 18. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, 
they will also keep yours. In Acts chapter 14, remember this is that section that Paul has referenced in uh, 2 Timothy. Uh, He has been stoned at Lystra. And in verse 21 of Acts 14, we read, and I think it's probably these words he's reflecting upon in 2 Timothy 3. In Acts 14, 21, when they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. Through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And I won't ask you to turn there, but in 1 John 3, 13, John says, do not be surprised, brethren, that the world hates you. Now that's very strong language. But Jesus Christ, the Son of God, says, I am the Son of God. I came into the world to save sinners. I bring the truth. I bring the Word of God. And the world hates me and hates what I bring. If we as Christians are consistent to bring, and I'm not talking about in a belligerent, ungracious way, but simply living for Christ in a gracious way, if we bring to this world the truth as it is in Jesus, the Bible says we will suffer persecution for it. And indeed, many of our Christian brothers around the world in Egypt and other places are suffering this morning in ways that far exceed anything that we have yet experienced. William Hendrickson says, the reason why persecution awaits all those who are firmly resolved to adorn their confession with a truly Christian life is that in the midst of contradictions coming from every side, they refuse either to stop their ears or to cringe and compromise. Instead, they face the foe and challenge him in combat. They go right ahead boldly defending the faith against every attack and courageously assaulting the fortress of unbelief. The result is persecution, at times very bitter. Now, I think we don't believe that. I really do. I'm speaking in generalities, of course. I, I think we just don't understand the total depravity of man. We think that men are basically good. We've bought into the psychobabble of the world. And we think that the problem with an unbeliever is he just doesn't understand some things. No, the problem is the human heart that stands opposed to the Word of God. It is antithetical to the Word of God. So you have the Word of God and the Word of man. The two cannot mesh. And when the church is consistent and faithful, the Bible says the world that hates Christ will hate us too. I can't tone it down. This is what the Savior says. This is what Jesus says. This is what the minister, therefore, should preach. Not only that, he says in verse 13, things are going to get worse. He says, while evil people and imposters will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. Does he mean here internally they're going to get worse or that things are going to get worse in society and culture? Well, I think he means both. As evil men grow from bad to worse, then of course things around us will also get worse and worse. I think we have to be careful here. The dispensationalist says things are going to get worse and worse and worse until Christ comes again. The postmillennialist says that things are going to get better and better and better until Christ comes again. I think what the Bible teaches is this. Things are going to get worse and worse and worse. And Christ's kingdom also is going to grow and grow and grow until Christ comes again. There's much more to say there. We don't have time for it at the moment. But nonetheless, nothing should shave the rough edges off what Paul says here in verse 13. It's a verb of progress in reverse. Evil men are going to grow worse and worse. They're going to go back and back and back uh, in their evil. Alfred Plummer put it this way. They begin by being seducers and end in being dupes, and the dupes very often of their own deceptions For deceit commonly leads to self-deceit. So deceitful men, deceiving the church, apostates, these deceitful ones are simply going to end up believing their own lies. That's how tragic it is. 
So here is Paul's apostolic authority, godly teaching, and example. False teachers delude people. Paul's example leads to Christ. So do not underestimate what a godly example can do. Uh, Your example can help other Christians stay the course, or your example can help other Christians to deviate from the path of faithfulness and righteousness. Put it another way, folks, it's real simple. Strong believers come from strong believers. You get it? Your children are going to be strong in the faith. Of course, there are exceptions to the rule. I'm not dealing with that. But your children are going to be strong in the faith when you are strong in the faith. Those you disciple will be strong in the faith when you are strong in the faith. Those who come up through this church will be strong in the faith when we are strong in the faith. I'm telling you, I could have bit a nail into. I could have bitten a nail into. Years ago, you don't remember it, I do. There was a representative of our denomination in this pulpit just pouring his doubt over this congregation. It is all I could do to sit through it. Today, I wouldn't. I was a younger man then. Just pouring his doubt all over the, my flock. That's, that's not what the minister is to do. And that's not how we make strong disciples. I will tell you something. I believe what I preach. I believe these things. I believe the Bible. I believe the gospel. I believe Christ. And I wouldn't enter this pulpit if I didn't. So that's first. Next in this encouragement to Timothy to be a man who stands against apostasy and for the truth. Secondly, we see that he says, look to your exposure to the Holy Scriptures. Look to your exposure, Timothy, to the Holy Scriptures, verses 14 and 15. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. So he references the Scriptures. The exhortation is to continue in what Timothy had learned, of what he now is personally assured, of what he truly now believes. And he learned from the Old Testament through Lois and Eunice and from Paul. In chapter 1, verse 5 of 2 Timothy, verse 5 of the first chapter, Paul said, I am reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I am sure dwells with you as well. In chapter 1, verse 13, follow the pattern of sound words that you have heard from me in the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. In chapter 2, verse 2, what you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. So parents, grandparents, Look at what God may do as you teach the Bible to your children, just as Lois and Eunice taught the young Timothy, indeed from infancy, the text indicates. Point your children to the text and to Christ in the sacred scriptures. Teach them how to listen to sermons, how to pay attention, how to follow the argument of a text how to derive their understanding of their world from the Word of God. Because the text to which Timothy had given his attention was Hieragramata, the sacred scriptures, the sacred writings. And from infancy, the scriptures formed Timothy's environment. The Bible, so to speak, was in his mother's milk. What a blessing! When a child can say, as far back as I remember, my parents have lived not a perfect, but a godly life. And they have taught me the sacred scriptures, and they have opened to me the gospel. And how wonderful when many of our covenant children can say, as far back as I remember, the Holy Spirit has so worked in my heart that I cannot remember a day in which I did not know and love the Lord Jesus Christ. So the knowledge of the scriptures must be given to our children 
as it was to Timothy, because he says in verse 15, this is the knowledge that leads to salvation. As he puts it here, how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Study the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life, said our Lord Jesus. Which are able to make you wise unto salvation shows the continuous power of the scripture to do this, which is why you need to be reading the Bible every day and you need to be sitting under the preaching of the word every week as often as you possibly can. Never forget the essential purpose of scripture is to show us Jesus Christ and his salvation. Now I say to you what Paul has said in this text to Timothy. Timothy, from infancy, you've grown up in this atmosphere of the scripture, and he's saying to him, now you hold fast to what you were taught. And I say to you, congregation, especially to you children who have the privilege, the the privilege of exposure to the word of God in many settings, week after week after week, you hold fast to the sacred scriptures. I promise you that if you hold to something else, You will go through things in life and every one of those things will let you down and let you down hard. But I also promise you if you hold to the sacred scriptures, you will go through hard things. The Bible doesn't teach prosperity Christianity. But when you go through it, you'll go through with your feet on solid ground. You see the difference? So he says this to Timothy. Which leads us to see the third thing. The third thing to which he points Timothy as he would have him be a man who stands for the truth against false teaching, against apostasy. He says, thirdly, the impregnable rock upon which to take your stand against apostasy, after all, Timothy, is the Bible. It's the Bible. And so we read in verse 16 this locus classicus of the inspiration of the Bible All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. And so he says, Pasa, grape, theopneustas. All Scripture is inspired by God, better translated as it is here. All Scripture is God-breathed. Using the vocabularies, the personalities, the settings of the various writers, nonetheless, the word that is written in this book is God's own verbally inspired word. Remarkable. And all of this, of course, meaning the Old Testament and the New Testament as it was developing in Timothy's day, But it's also applicable to a closed canon, to a finished scripture. It's applicable to this book that I'm preaching this morning and that you hold in your hands. Turn with me to 2 Peter chapter 1, just for one other passage about this. 2 Peter chapter 1 verse 21 The Apostle Peter says similarly, for no prophecy, this is 2 Peter 1.21, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So he says, Timothy, the impregnable rock upon which you take your stand against apostasy and for the truth is the Bible. There is no other. And then he goes on to speak of the profitability of the Bible. Look at verse 16 again, 2 Timothy 3. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in unrighteousness. And so the profitability of the Bible is seen in its teaching. All that you need for your salvation is found right here in this book. You'll find it in no place else. It is necessary for reproof of false teaching and false living, warning against error, 
showing us the danger of that which is not right and which is wrong. Teaching, reproof, correction, the word means setting straight. It means correction or restoration. And for instruction in righteousness. So that having come to faith in Jesus Christ, we also now have to live for Jesus Christ. Let me give you an example of instruction in righteousness in the pastoral epistles. It's in Titus. Just turn a page over. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. This is instruction in righteousness. Titus 2, 11 and following. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You know, I've been thinking about this a lot. I do think about it a great deal. In the end, when I stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give an account for my ministry, now I'm justified, accepted, but I still give an account for my ministry. The measure of my ministry is going to be to what degree have I been faithful to expound to my sheep the actual words of Holy Scripture. Now, I know that's what, not what people want today. They, they, they want all kinds of things. The Bible says here in 2 Timothy 4 that the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. But nonetheless, the question will be, have you been faithful? And then I think the question will be, to what degree... Have you been bent on, intent on, developing a flock that is Christ-like because of this preached word? That's really it. The question will not be, did you have 5,000 people in worship? It just won't be. It won't be about, about what kinds of programs did you start or anything else. It's going to be, were you faithful as a shepherd to shepherd them with this word? And then your question will be, was I intent on receiving that word, believing it, and living it as received from our pastor's mouth? He speaks of the Bible's equipping power in verse 17, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, when he says the man of God, I don't know why the commentators don't see this. This is a technical word for prophet. Okay, man of God. Remember how many times you read in the Old Testament the prophet is called man of God? Isha Adonai, man of God, the man of God. Now, he's not saying that the New Testament minister is a prophet in the sense that the minister stands and delivers non-derivative word. No, our only Our only source is this book. We have no other source but this book. But there is an analogy between the minister of the word in the New Covenant era and the Old Testament prophet in that he proclaims God's word. He foretells the word. And I, as a minister, am only fully prepared and equipped by the study of this word to deliver to you the only word I have, which is the word of this book. But I do think that it's more generally applicable when it says man of God to all who would be godly in Christ Jesus. For the question is, how are we equipped to live in this present evil age? And the answer is the word. What's the next answer? The word. Well, what's the next answer? The word. (laughs) The word, the word, the word. And with every reason to believe it, the world will not believe it, cannot actually believe it. But let us believe God's word. Spurgeon said, long ago I ceased to count heads. Truth is usually in the minority in this evil world. 
I have faith in the Lord Jesus for myself, a faith burned into me as with a hot iron. I thank God what I believe I shall believe, even if I have to believe it alone. Now, I think that's a fair exposition of the text that is before us. Let's bring some things together. And I want to, uh, through this text, focus with you on just a few thoughts. As we've expounded this text, one thing should really jump out at us, and that is the importance of teaching the Word of God to our children. We saw it. Timothy's grandmother and mother, as well as Paul, taught the young Timothy. Loved one, Dr. Oliphant was with us last Sunday night, standing here. He said, you stand here or nowhere holding up his Bible. I said, Scott, that's just what I want my congregation to hear. You stand here or nowhere. You will find no resting place, any other place but in the Bible. I remember E.J. Young, in his great little book, Thy Word is Truth, uh, years ago, somewhat vague in my mind, but I remember that he said he was in Colorado, he was looking ahead on the road, and he saw a, a bridge, and the bridge looked so shaky and as if the car just wouldn't go over it. And when he rolled up to it, he found that bridge was quite different than he had supposed It was so solid as to be static. It was just there, and he had no problem driving his car over it. Well, you know, liberal folk who interpret the Bible say you have the static view of the Bible and so forth. Well, let me tell you, you can drive the car of your life over it. It's firm, folks. The Word of God is firm. And so, mark your children. Pray that God will mark our children with our biblical convictions. And if you haven't noticed, everything is designed in this world to tear down the biblical convictions of our children. You want your young man to grow up to be a godly husband and father? The world's not going to help him do that. Where do you learn it? You learn it in this book. You want your daughter to grow up to be a godly young woman who knows how to be a a godly wife and a godly mother? The Bible is the only place you'll learn it. You'll not learn it from culture. Let's pray that our children love the book. And you can and should believe the Bible. Well, we just can't believe the Bible. It's an exploded book, people tell me. That's absolute nonsense. I spent my undergraduate work under brilliant professors from Ivy League schools who did not believe the Bible, and I found their arguments to be as solid as air. I'm not saying there are no difficulties when you study the Bible, but difficulties and contradictions are different things entirely. The issue is fundamentally an issue of the human heart. It goes all the way back to Eden when the serpent said, Did God really say? And ever since, that's been his method in opposition to this book. Did God really say? The Bible possesses its own internal evidence, its own self-attestation. Most impressive is the Bible's unity. But unbelief can't see it. Now, if the church gives up the Bible... She should understand what she is doing. Many years ago, I had a debate with a college professor on the inspiration of the Bible, and I remember at the, uh, toward the end using an illustration with this college professor, something like this. You're a pastor in a church. You have an, an old, dying believer in Jesus. And you're standing over, over her, and she says, Pastor, would you please open your Bible to Isaiah 53? Read to me that beautiful passage before I die about Jesus and how he died for sinners, how he bore my transgressions and took all of my sorrows, how he was crushed for my iniquities. Pastor, read that passage to me that Isaiah the prophet delivered by divine inspiration. Now, if the man's honest, he'll say to her this, sorry, I I can read it to you, but 
Don't you see, uh, I don't believe Isaiah wrote it. (laughs) There were three authors of Isaiah, and I don't believe he wrote it, and I certainly don't believe it's a prophecy about Jesus. My, My higher critical education has taught me that I have to dissect the Bible in such a way that I see that uh, there's a documentary hypothesis that must be applied to Isaiah, and it wasn't about Jesus at all. Actually, there's no ancient prophecy about Christ because we live in a closed universe, and God really can't give us a word about the future. And he was incensed with me. He was very upset with me. But nonetheless, I could say, Professor, that is the logic of your position. You give up the Bible, that's what you're giving up. All things take their meaning from God and His revelation. No Bible, no meaning, no answer for guilt, no salvation, no basis for morality. And the real issue, let me tell you, is the regeneration of the human heart. All of you know the name Abraham Kuyper. You know that he was a Reformed minister, that he was the Prime Minister of the Netherlands, that he helped found a Reformed denomination and a Reformed university. Most all of you know that about Abraham Kuyper. What you may not know about Abraham Kuyper was that when he first started out in the ministry, he was a Christ denier, did not believe the Bible, who had applauded his professor when his professor denied the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. He went into a, what we would call a country church, uh, among what were called the Kleine Leiden, the, the little people of the Netherlands, the common folk, as they were called. And as he went among them, they believed the Bible. They lived as if they believed the Bible. They trusted in Christ. And as he watched those little people, Kuiper became a little man before God humbled into the dust, and trusted Jesus Christ as his Savior. Why? The Holy Spirit regenerated his heart, changed his whole way of looking at the world. That is the fundamental problem. It's not that there are all these great arguments against the Bible. The problem is the human heart that refuses to bow to the sovereignty of the Word of God. Now, the fruit of rejecting God's Word is now ripe in our country. Utter and complete moral degeneration. But when the church gives up God's Word, the church ceases to be the church and becomes one with the world. And there's no difference. Turn to John chapter 8. What does Jesus have to say about this matter? In John 8, verse 43 and following, he's speaking to the Jews who are refusing to believe what he says. In John 8, 43, he says, Why do you not, this is verse 43, Why do you not understand what I say? So he asks the question, why, why is it that you don't understand what I'm saying? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. But because I tell you the truth, you do not believe me. Which one of you convicts me of sin? I tell you the truth. Why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. And the thing that should be taken from this is that response, I mean a positive believing response to the Word of God is not a natural thing, but it is a supernatural thing. It's not primarily an intellectual matter. It's the disposition of the human heart, forming the presuppositions by which we use our intellects. 
So I want to conclude with a warning. As you read 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, as you read Titus also, you see already in the New Testament environment the development of error and apostasy and an error that later will develop into full-blown Gnosticism. As we look around us, false teaching, false doctrine, cults everywhere. And I want to say, do not give up your stand for the Bible. And do not give up your stand on the Bible. Even in our conservative denomination, some men are playing at the edges of this thing. But what do we read here? Let's read it again in 2 Timothy 3, 14 and following. But... As for you, he says this to Timothy, I say it to you. As for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, will you listen to my favorite Baptist Presbyterian, Mr. Spurgeon, as he says this to us. A chasm is opening between the men who believe their Bibles and the men who are prepared for an advance upon Scripture. The time, he says, has come for Christians to be stirred. The house is being robbed. Its very walls are being digged down. But the good people who are in bed are too fond of the warmth and too much afraid of getting broken heads to go downstairs and meet the burglars. Inspiration and speculation cannot long abide in peace. Compromise there can be none. We cannot hold the inspiration of the word and yet reject it. We cannot believe in the atonement and deny it. We cannot hold the doctrine of the fall and yet talk of the evolution of spiritual life from human nature. We cannot recognize the punishment of the impenitent and yet indulge the larger hope. That is the idea that people can be saved without the gospel. One way or the other, we must go. Decision is the virtue of the hour. And folks, we need Christians, and you can be that Christian who are graciously decisive in this fallen world, who really do believe the Bible and who live consistently with it. For as Persian says, fellowship with known and vital error is participation in sin. And so, so, people of God, God calls you to be resolute in your defense of the faith once delivered unto the saints. God give us grace in this age of apostasy to stand fast. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.